Let us worship God. First reading is from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, beginning with the fourth verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. O oh God, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives of those who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning, that we might hear your word for us this day. Amen. Hear, O Israel, the Holy One is our God, the Holy One alone. You shall love the Holy One, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home 
and when you are away, when you lie down, and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. The second scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel according to Mark, a portion of the 12th chapter. 
Let us listen for the word of God. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Holy One, our God, is one, and you shall love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that God is one, and besides God there is no other, and to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the sovereignty of God. After that, no one dared ask him any question. Sit right here quietly until it's time to start. Oh, not you, my friend Mary. That's what her father used to say to her. You sit right here quietly. A few months ago, I delivered a sermon in which I told a story about Mary. Mary was a young woman with mental disabilities who volunteered at a long-term care facility where I once worked. Mary loved hymns. Perhaps you remember that story. After I delivered that sermon, I received an email asking me what had become of Mary over the years. Unfortunately, I do not know. I left that job for another job at a large hospital, and I lost contact with her. I started thinking about Mary again, and this is the other significant memory that I have of her. Mary did not have the ability to drive. So her father brought her to her volunteer job early in the morning, and that's what I remember. She arrived really early in the morning. I discovered that her early arrival was because her father was a cardiologist who would bring her to work before he made his morning rounds at the hospital just a block away. The other detail I remember is the way he spoke to Mary. Even with my office door closed, I could hear his gruff voice demanding that she sit on the lobby sofa quietly until it was time for work. Then he would command that at the end of the day, she sit on the same sofa until he came back to pick her up. I remember feeling anger at the way he spoke to her. And I wondered how a prominent medical doctor could talk with a mentally disabled person like that, especially his own daughter, his only child. One day I happened to step out of my office just as he was bringing Mary to work. I had heard his voice through my door many times, but this was the first time I had ever seen him. He was much older than I thought he'd be. As a matter of fact, he looked old enough to be Mary's grandfather. When I looked into his face, my heart sank. 
And I had a feeling I knew why he was so stern with Mary. Upon talking with a staff member who knew him well, my hunch was confirmed. As I looked into his eyes, I saw the agony of a father who knew that his daughter would never be able to make it on her own. She would never learn to drive, never be able to cook her own meals, never have her own home. And so he gave her commands, hoping against hope that somehow she would learn to follow directions well enough so that she could become somewhat independent. I saw the heartbreak of a parent who would have to find a sheltered living environment for his only child when he and Mary's mother were no longer around. When I think about that encounter today, I realize how unaware I was of the burdens that her father bore. I did not understand the heartbreaking burden that an elderly parent would have to make concerning the future of his disabled daughter. So I jumped to conclusions with my feelings of anger towards him. I've learned that it's best not to jump to conclusions or make snap judgments because we do not know the burdens that another person carries. I believe that this morning's gospel reading addresses this issue. Allow me to set the scene in the broader context of the gospel according to Mark. Prior to this passage in the 12th chapter, we read of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The crucifixion is just a few days away. So the scene is set sometime during Holy Week. During this time, the religious leaders were pestering Jesus, pushing him, trying to peg him as a heretic and a rabble-rouser so they could do away with him. They did this by testing him, constantly questioning him, trying to trap him. Just before the passage we read this morning, the chief priests and the scribes asked Jesus by what authority he said and did the things they had heard about. Then they tried to trap him with questions about loyalty to God versus loyalty to Caesar. Next, they told him to explain the resurrection of the dead, of which there is no clear teaching in Hebrew writings. Finally, in the passage that we read this morning, a scribe approaches Jesus. He's less confrontational than the previous religious leaders, but this is a test nonetheless. He asked Jesus to explain which commandment is the greatest. Jesus responded by quoting the first commandment. Although he did not quote from the list of ten commandments found in the book of Exodus, nor from the list found in the book of Deuteronomy. Instead, Jesus quoted from an explanation of the first commandment that is found later on in Deuteronomy. We read that explanation this morning. It begins, as we translate it, Hear, O Israel. In Hebrew, that is, Shema Yisrael. Those are powerful words. Jewish prayers recited in the morning and in the evening begin Shema Yisrael. And to this day, those of the Hebrew faith consider those two words to be the most important in the entire prayer. So Jesus answers the question, which is the greatest commandment by framing his answer in the context of a prayer. He answered, 
the greatest commandment is, hear, O Israel. And then he went on to quote, you shall love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Wow, what a perfect answer for someone who is trying to trap him. He could have stopped there, but he went further. He said, you know, there's a second commandment like that one. It is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> what? The question was, what is the greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself? That's not even one of the big ten. Where did that come from? Well, it just happens that love your neighbor as yourself is found in Hebrew scriptures. It's lost in the 19th chapter of Leviticus. Now there's a book I'll bet you haven't cracked open in a while. <laughs> Leviticus, third book of the Bible. It's really the last half of Exodus, the second book, but some ancient editor chopped it off of the end of Exodus, made it into its own book, which is probably for the best because Leviticus is primarily what we would call a directory of worship. That is, it gives very detailed instructions to the priests as to how they were to perform their many duties in the ancient temple. Which is why I'm pretty sure you haven't bothered to read Leviticus in a while. Now, there's a later section in that book that does give generalized instructions to the people as to how to live a devout life. Scholars call it a holiness code. Hidden in that section, among instructions on proper farming techniques, reminders of food that are kosher to eat, teachings on proper barbering of the hair, and before the warnings, warnings against talking to fortune tellers and warnings against getting tattoos. Oh yeah, it's all there. It's all there in chapter 19. Lost in the middle of all of that is this one short line. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a commandment. It's not a law, not a statute, not an ordinance. It's just there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus lifted that line out of Leviticus and elevated it to the stature of the first and the greatest commandment. And he implied that to love your neighbor as yourself is essentially the same thing as loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In many circles, that would have been a scandalous thing to say. That's why I suspect those who were with Jesus that day stood there in wide-eyed amazement. Interestingly enough, after hearing his answer, the scribe agreed with Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do we do that? When I think of those words, my mind usually goes to words from the Sermon on the Mount. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. That's how you love your neighbor as yourself. It means that you treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. 
You assist your neighbor when assistance is needed because that's what you would want. You don't jump to conclusions or make snap judgments. You simply help carry another person's burdens when they can't do it on their own. Do unto others as you want them to do to you. Why? Because you never know the burdens someone else is carrying. Why? Because as Jesus might have said, that's how you show that you love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because when you do that, you show that you're loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and that is the greatest commandment. In fact, that is the sum teaching of the entire Bible. So to put it into more succinct terms, we show that we love God when we treat another person the way we want to be treated because we don't know the burdens that another person may be carrying. What made my best childhood friend, Lewis, with whom I was inseparable from first grade onwards, what made Lewis suddenly become a recluse when we were in high school and he still lives that way today? I don't know the burden that he carries. What was the pain so great? What was the weight so crushing that it forced my friend Shannon to take his own life at age 42? I will never know the terrible burden that he carried. But what I can do is refrain from jumping to conclusions or making snap judgments. I can also remember to treat other people the way I want to be treated, to love my neighbor as myself. In our internet culture today, it's popular to have a tagline or a slogan beneath one's email signature. I have a tagline. Maybe you do too. It's our own personal branding. My tagline is, it is never too late to be what you might have been. That quote is attributed to George Eliot. George Eliot was a prolific novelist in 19th century Britain. He was so popular that it is said that Queen Victoria read his novels. He had a unique way of writing about what was really happening in society beneath the Downton Abbey facade of Victorian England. But George Eliot had a secret. You see, that was not really his name. It was a nom de plume. His real name was Mary Ann Evans. Marianne wrote her novels using the name George because she knew that in the 19th century, nobody would read her books if they knew that she was a woman. Half of us here this morning do not fully understand the burdens that the other half carries. I've long been drawn to her quote so much, however, that I've made it my tagline. It is never too late to be what you might have been, because that quote seems to fit my own life's experience. You see, by the time I graduated from seminary, I had earned two graduate degrees in theology. Upon graduation, I was called to be a minister at a very large Presbyterian church in Charlotte, North Carolina. The church was so large that I was the eighth full-time minister on the clergy staff. And I want to tell you, it was a privilege to be able to work with the other members of that clergy staff. But I was not there long 
before the people in the pews began to whisper and question why Bobby was over 30 and still single and did not seem to date women. Eventually, those whispers grew into a roar, and after four years, I was forced out of the church. You see, I did not meet the seven unwritten rules for acceptance in the church and business and in society in the South in the 1980s. Those seven unwritten rules were that one should be young, white, male, straight, married, have 2.3 kids, and a minivan in the driveway. Do you remember the minivans of the 80s and the 90s? After I was forced out of the church, I was desperate for a job, so I grabbed the first one I could get, which was doing administrative work in a long-term care facility. That's where I met Mary in the first story that I told you, and what a time that was. But even in healthcare, I still could not get ahead because I was still in the South and I still did not meet the seven unwritten rules, this time for advancement. And those seven unwritten rules were that one should be young, white, male, straight, married, have 2.3 kids, and that minivan. It took years, but eventually I mustered up the courage to get out. Slowly I sold almost everything I owned. Then I put my house on the market. The day my house sold, I resigned from my job at the hospital, and on my 45th birthday, I drove out of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I never looked back. Six days later, I drove into San Francisco, California. When I arrived here, I had no job and no place to live. I had only the promise from a dear friend that I could crash on his sofa until I figured it out. I was 45 years old. We do not know the burdens that other people carry, do we? And all of us carry burdens. That's the hard news. The better news is it is never too late to be what you might have been. And for me personally, the best news is, by God's grace, I have done well in San Francisco. But I would not be telling the whole story if I led you to believe that I've done it on my own, because I have not. There are many people who have helped me along the way, people who have helped to carry my burdens, people who have loved me like they love themselves, and in so doing, shown me something of the mystery of the love of God. Those people are my saints. I thank God for my saints who've helped me along the way, and I suspect you have saints like that in your life as well. In a few minutes, we will participate in one of the most beautiful rituals, I think, in the life of our congregation as we light these candles and say the names of our saints, those people who have loved us like they love themselves but who are no longer with us on this earth. Before we do that, I would like to close with a prayer that I wrote during those dark days when I was being driven from the professional ministry. It speaks to my burden at the time and my reminder to love my neighbor as myself. I wrote that prayer on a card and I carried it in my pocket for years until it became so much a part of me that I no longer needed it in my pocket. 
because my prayer had become like my own breath is. I invite you to make my prayer your own as well. Gracious God, keep my heart free from hate. Keep my mind free from worry. Keep my body free from abuse. Let me live simply, to expect little, but to give much, to think of the other person first, to remember that the other person also carries burdens, and to do for the other person what I want that person to do for me, which is to love generously and without judgment. Amen.
As we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God. Thank you. 
Let us pray. Holy One, you have fed us in word, in music, in silence, in candlelight, and in the communion of saints. And for that, we give you our thanks and praise. Amen. As you go forth this day, go forth and love generously and without judgment. And may the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love, be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen.